This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Ingress, number one in its field. Ian Craig always had a soft spot for the Gosford track. That's where he called his first on-air thoroughbred race for 2UE in the mid-1960s, and it was no surprise when he decided to call his last race there some 44 years later. He must have been feeling a little fragile as he prepared to call the farewell Ian Craig handicap over 2,100 metres on Wednesday the 24th of June 2009, but as always, the call was flawless. As a mare called Very Keen raced away to win easily, her jockey Hugh Bowman let go of his inside rein long enough to give Ian a special salute. And that little salute cost Huey $300. The fine imposed by steward Mark Van Gestel for a gesture that he regarded as dangerous. You'll be amazed when I tell you that Ian Craig's last day as a race caller was 10 years ago. Ian's online to talk to us on the podcast. Did that little hiccup take the gloss off an otherwise perfect day? You're right, John. Nice to be with you. Yes, I thought uh, that it was unjust to be truthful. Mm. Always uh, known Huey for a long time, and uh, I thought it was a, a lovely gesture on my final day and final race that uh, he was to acknowledge that fact. So, uh, mm. yeah, it didn't, didn't sit well, put it that way, with me. No, and it wasn't a flamboyant gesture. I think he just stuck his right index finger in the air. That was Exactly it. right, John. Exactly right. Mm. Ian, it was a day of high emotion for you that day. You called the first two races. You missed yeah. the middle part of the program to attend a luncheon in your honour downstairs. Mm. And then it was back to the box to call the last two races. Do you recall how you were feeling as the last race drew near? Yes, uh, I well, firstly, John, to uh, get into the last, I had to survive the takeover target stakes and a field of 16. And uh, I thought, right, see, this is a, an impost with uh, a, a lovely luncheon that had proceeded, of course. And anyway, uh, fortunately, we got through that. Strats flyer, Daniel Ganderton, was the winner of the takeover target. Mm. Trained by Alan Denham and raced by John Bazina, as you'd remember, John. Mm. And then it came to the last race. But no, I was feeling uh, quite calm and uh, fortunately it was a clear-cut finish and uh, and very keen. Terry Evans, a local trainer at that stage, now training at Tuncurry, yeah. uh, was the, uh, the mentor of that mare. So, yes, I'll long remember that day and I'll long remember, of course, my final day for... Uh, days earlier, my final Sydney broadcast. Oh, what a beauty. Tell me about it. Well, the day dawned uh, on the downside weather-wise and it rained, it rained, it rained. It was Randwick Racecourse on the 20th of June, '09, and uh, races one, two and three survived on the course proper and then it was found unfit for further racing, so the club decided to transfer the remaining races to the Kensington track, mm. four, five, six, seven, and 8. It was interesting, actually, John, on that day reminiscing, uh, Huey Bowman was able to win three races, mm. and also on that 
particular program, uh, Tommy Berry won a race, and so too did Nathan Berry. Oh, gosh. And the last was won by a horse called Mr. Unforgettable. And it's coincidental that Dan Ganton, Dan Ganton, who I mentioned to you, rode uh, the winner of the last feature race I did at Gosford to take over Target. Yeah. Uh, he rode Mr. Unforgettable, who was trained by Kevin Moses. Mm, goodness me. Kevin yeah. is still training, but he's got yeah. one horse in work. Yeah, well, I suppose uh, it keeps him, keeps him active. Yeah, I don't know whether he wants more or he's happy with just the one. Mm, he was a wonderful rider, wasn't he? He had great success. Uh, I think people tend to overlook Kevin a bit when you're talking about Group 1 jockeys, but he had a terrific Group 1 record, including a slipper on yeah, Dark Eclipse. Eclipse. Ronnie yeah. Quinton jumped off that one, of course. Ron yeah. had the pick between Dark Eclipse and a filly you'll well remember, Fiancé. Yes, indeed, very classy. And he plumped for fiancé and down the outside came Moses at long odds. Yeah, well, there you are. Very versatile man, Kev. Now, Ian, both Brian Martin and Greg Miles told me they were a little lost for a while after their final day. Did you have any withdrawals? No, John. I planned retirement. I thought, uh, you know, the end of the uh, financial year 2009 was a, a good way to go out. And, uh, you know, I've done it for so long. So, no, I, uh, I'm very fortunate to have done what started out as um, a hobby, prior to that a childhood dream, and something that's panned out as a full-time career. So mm. I was very fortunate and very lucky. So, uh, and there's life after race calling. So, um, you know, the last 10 years seems to have gone very quickly. I, uh, I still follow the races very closely. Uh, we've done a bit of traveling. I'm uh, a very, very keen walker. Yep. I want to improve my longevity in life. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, I'm very happy with the way everything's worked out, John. I know you've traveled a lot. Uh, you're not a golfer. No. You're not a bowler. And you're not a fisherman. <laughs> I haven't got much going for me then, have I? <laughs> so you, you, you've shortchanged yourself there in three very important areas. <laughs> so walking and travelling have been your main activities. Yeah, yeah we, uh, we find that uh, that is uh, quite fulfilling. And uh, yeah, no, life, life is good, John. You were one of two boys born to Marge and Mick Craig. You were educated at Sydney Grammar. Now, and I assume that you'll give me a completely truthful answer here. How did you rate yourself as a scholar? About three out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask me how I went in certain subjects, such as French. Yeah. survived first year. <laughs> you didn't like French, no, I remember that, yeah. My, uh, my academic career was... Uh, not overly long. Sydney Grammar was back then and probably still is a great sporting school and you dabbled in a few pursuits including cricket and there was one memorable bowling achievement that one can find somewhere in the records at Sydney Grammar. You mean that hat trick that I got? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, two uh, two wickets at the end of one over, and then uh, my next over, another wicket. Yes, that that must have been a fluke. But yeah, we were playing uh, 
Scots Colleges, a matter of fact, at Bellevue Hill. And that's the school that Huey Bowman attended. Mm. Well, Ian, that's that's a pretty good performance and wonderful dinner party material, isn't it? A hat trick. Uh, yeah. They were great days, John. Um, Sydney Grammar uh, these days is probably a little different to what it uh, was in those days, particularly uh, on an academic front. And uh, But it was a great school to attend. And uh, actually, in the year behind me was... Paul Ambrosoli, mm. and of course, uh, Paul, well-known, a brilliant commentator, and particularly in the Greyhound area, mm. and uh, yeah, he was a grammar boy as well. At different times, you must have been mistaken for the cricketing legend Ian Craig, who had been the youngest Australian to ever appear in a test match, Yep, uh, and I think the youngest to ever captain a test side. Yep, you're right. Yeah, I I wish I could have played cricket uh, a half as well, a quarter as well as uh, Ian Craig. And I remember one time, John, when I was working at 2UE in the early days and I was doing the studio on a Saturday afternoon, crossing to the commentators, etc. And grade cricket in those times was very popular. And we used to give the tea time grade cricket scores and Ian Craig the cricketer was uh, playing with Mossman and uh, I gave the scores a T Ian Craig not out 43 and we had uh, a listener ring our switchboard at 2UE to say how can Ian Craig be not out 43 he's talking on the radio (laughs) (laughs) but yes uh, I suppose really it was fairly uh, uh, unique to think that um, you know Ian Craig, not a common name, mm. um, and there was uh, two people that, uh, to uh, a degree, were in the public eye with the same names, yeah. If he were still alive, he'd be 84. Uh, he died in 2014, and uh, he certainly left a great legacy. Oh, he was a wonderful cricketer, wasn't he, John? Yes, he was an industrial chemist. And uh, he did very, very well outside of cricket. But, uh, yeah, a wonderful, wonderful cricketer and uh, will always be remembered. Your interest in racing developed in the most unusual way. Now, as a kid, you contracted a pretty nasty malady called rheumatic fever. Yep. And it laid you up for a hell of a long time and you were bored to tears. Certainly was. Spent about six months in bed. And uh, you're right, that's how the racing bug uh, struck. Uh, My brother, uh, who really uh, over the subsequent years uh, hasn't had much of an interest in in racing, but he and a mate of his were following a couple of jockeys. And my brother was following uh, the career of Billy Cook and his mate was following the career of Billy Briscoe. So in those days, as you'd remember, there were only... uh, race broadcasts of a Saturday afternoon. So uh, my brother and his mate used to be uh, cheering for their jockeys and I thought, well, I'd better get in on the act. Mm. And I picked out a jockey called Jack Thompson. Mm. And, uh, of course, the uh, the bug got me. I used to listen to the races every Saturday afternoon to see how Tomo went. And uh, that's how it, it, it all started. Mm. And in that era... Jack Thompson was at the absolute top of his game. He won five Sydney Jockeys Premierships, one of yep. them 
as an apprentice. Uh, late 40s into the 50s were Jack Thompson's golden years. Absolutely, and I was shell-shocked when uh, we talk about Jack Thompson in 1948. Mm. And uh, I was a crook at that time, but uh, I could still uh, get up and, and go outdoors. And uh, mm. my mum was going to a Melbourne Cup luncheon, and I was away from school, of course, being sick at that time. So I went with her to this luncheon, mm. and um, the luncheon was held at uh, a close friend of mum's and uh, the lady involved uh, hosting the afternoon. She had a big radio in the lounge room mm. and I was listening to the Melbourne Cup and Joe Brown was the commentator and I was absolutely crestfallen when Tomo was relegated to a close second on Darkman, beaten by Rimfire, as history now tells it. And of course, as you know, John, uh, Tomo believes that that was one race that he did win. Mm. The photo finish, he believed, was wrong. Yes. And, and remember, he... it was adjusted not all that long after the Melbourne Cup. Yep, it was found to be out of alignment, and Tomo, till the day he died, claimed that he won that Melbourne Cup. Yep, and uh, it was a great call by Joe. I can still remember it all these years down track, more so probably because Tom got beaten, but Joe actually went for rimfire. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, but gee, you, you think of John, uh, uh, Jack Thompson, John, some of the horses that he rode over the years, particularly those trained by Frank Dawson, Valerius. Mm. Remember that sprinter, Star Realm. What about the duel of the uh, Victoria Derby, AJC Derby winner, Monte Carlo? Yeah. Abakia, he was a good sprinter. Mm. Tomo told me once, Ian, uh, years later, that Star Realm was the fastest horse he rode. For Is sheer, that right? Yep, for sheer basic speed, uh, he, he said uh, Star Realm was lightning fast. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was wonderful to follow his career, and uh, it was terrific to think that when I started, he was just coming to the end of his career, so... I was able to broadcast many races in which Jack rode. Wonderful bloke, and he rode into his 62nd year. Yes. His last uh, ride in a race was at Kembla Grange. Might have been a horse called Blocky's Son, unplaced. Mm-hmm. And his last winner was for his great mate, Albert Stapleford, at Wyong, a horse called It's Lunchtime. Yeah. It was Jack Thompson's uh, he last was a- winner. Yep. yep, great rider, great barrier jockey too, John, wasn't he? Mm, oh, yeah. Great with two-year-olds. You know, your interest in racing, as we say, developed through boredom, really, following the uh, rheumatic fever bout. Yeah. Uh, when it was time for you to find gainful employment, it was inevitable that you would work in your dad's tailoring business at Parramatta. Now, Mick True. thought it would be a good idea, though. He wasn't going to let you straight in. He thought you should gain experience elsewhere before he Absolutely. gave you a job. Absolutely. Well, that was uh, when I left school and I went to the Stamina Clothing Company and uh, they had a warehouse uh, under the name Hooper and Harrison in the city. Mm. And you're right, Dad said, well, you know, if uh, you're going to come into this clothing business, uh, you've got to get experience outside. So I I worked for about uh, three years with uh, Stamina 
And uh, then Dad said, well, you know, you've had three years' experience outside. Do you wish to join the family company at 298 Church Street, Parramatta, YL8313, Craig and Sons? <laughs> and uh, so I, I joined the company. And uh, as it turned out about, oh, John, two years, two and a half years later, Reuben F. Scarf mm. were looking for a, a presence in Parramatta and uh, they offered to uh, to buy the business and uh, Dad and his brother uh, sold to Ruben F. Scarf. Mm. So uh, I ended up going back to the Stamina Clothing Company, mm. but always hankering for uh, maybe a job in media as a racing commentator. So that's when I decided, well, I'm going to have to do something about this, and I had to get practice, didn't I? So I used to go over to the Granville trotting Jim Carters every second Sunday and go over in to the bush at the back and just practice the calling. Um, and then I'd go outside Harold Park up on the hill uh, overlooking the flat uh, for the trots and the dogs to get experience. And that's how basically I, uh, I was able to ultimately get a foot in the door. Mm. Did you ever feel uncomfortable, ill at ease, lurking in the bushes at the back of Granville so <laughs> Well, no, I didn't because there was nobody else there, but the trotting drivers, they'd, a couple of them would acknowledge me mm. <laughs> as they were doing the warm-up. But, uh, yeah, and it was interesting, John, that that should be the uh, first public appearance, uh, Granville Showground, uh, and a Sunday Jim Carter, Ray Conroy, offered me the chance to broadcast my first public race. Yes. And that I did. Sydney Song, J.C. Caffin. Jimmy, of course, trained his horses at, uh, at Granville Showground. Mm. Now, so that was, that was the start. And that led you to the big Bankstown, Jim Carter. I mean, it was common to see 24, 25 races at yep, the Bankstown yes. trials. Yeah. yeah, Ray gave away the, uh, the trotting Jim Carters at Bankstown and uh, I took over there. And, uh, and then that... Uh, and the Richmond Dogs became my uh, staple diets as far as race calling was concerned. The Richmond Dogs in those days, a straight track, mm -hmm. 320 and 410 yards, yeah, 14 races a day, four in the morning, commencing yeah. at two minutes past 11. I don't know why they always commenced at two no. after 11. Yeah. A lunch break after the fourth, the box draw for the 10 races in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I finished there, John, my... Uh, Stipend for the day was four pounds eighteen shillings. Good heavens! And I drove all the way from Cronulla to Londonderry, but you do it for nicks. Yeah, and the the petrol would be two quid. Yeah, exactly. So, but mate, it was the break, and then ultimately uh, I took over the Richmond Trots on the right-handed six furlong grass track, mm. and I remember the Tom Austin Cup was their feature attraction run on the Queen's birthday holiday in June, mm. and I remember on one occasion they had to close the gates. There were that many people there. Wasn't it a popular meeting, the Tom Austin Wonderful. Cup on the grass track? And yeah. the Cup would often draw top Harold Park horses, and all of the leading and, trainers would participate in that race. And, John, many subsequent uh, big bookmakers in Sydney cut their teeth at the Richmond Trots and Dogs. Mm. Ian, I'll get you to stand by there for a moment. We'll clear a commitment on the podcast back after this. 
The completion of the Great Southern Sale in Melbourne brought down the curtain on a spectacular sales season for Inglis. In 2019, Inglis cleared an amazing 85% of all yearlings offered a Southern Hemisphere high. Inglis sold 19 of the 30 yearlings in Australia to make more than a million dollars, as well as the only two yearlings to sell for two million or more. Inglis graduates have won 20 individual Group 1 races for the season so far. Inglis ended the sales season as the Southern Hemisphere market leader. Entries for the classic Melbourne Premier, Australian Easter, Melbourne Gold and Scone Yearling sales will be open in early July. You'll find details and entry forms at inglis.com.au. And my special guest is Ian Craig, who retired from race calling 10 years ago. Came as a shock to me, and I'm sure it will to you too. There is one very significant date in your scrapbook. 26th of January, 1962. It was the running of the Goulburn Sapling Stakes. Gee, this yep. was a big meeting back then, two-year-old paces. It was uh, the first major, uh, if you could term it that, uh, meeting that I covered. And um, there was a little stand there with no awning, terraced steps, uh, just a microphone on a stand and uh, slung the 1050s around my neck and uh, away we went. They were huge uh, races, those sapling stakes in that period, weren't they, John? Mm. And uh, Jimmy Caffin was very much to the fore in many of those. I remember he had a horse called Gorolite. Yep. And, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was a great time. That was your first paid job? Yes, it was. And not long after that, uh, the Richmond Dogs came along. And uh, then uh, after that, uh, the, the Lithgow Trots. Yep. And then, of course, uh, it led to, um, to more um, metropolitan work. Mm. Lithgow Trots was a, a great outlet for mediocre horses and I can remember back in my early days as a trainer if I had an ordinary horse uh, Lithgow was the place we could sneak to to try and get away with one yep and I had a just an average two-year-old filly many years ago who had perfect manners could stand up you know to the in the standing start races and ping the lids as they say mm. and I thought she'll be very hard to beat around Lithgow on manners alone Cut a long story short, I'm in front at the bell. I'm in front going up the back straight. Suddenly, something went past me like Haley's Comet. Mm. Almost blew me out of the cart. When we pulled up, the driver of that particular filly said, don't be too disappointed in your filly. He said, this one's pretty good. It was Caramia Duplicity. Oh, goodness me. Who went on to win a million dollars in prize money, and I'm a going million. back nearly 30 years. Gosh. An outstanding fast-class mare, and I've run into her in a maiden two-year-old at Lithgow. I wish I hadn't brought it up. <laughs> Gee, a million dollars then. What would that be worth now? Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Memories. Yeah, no, we had a lot of fun up at Lithgow. Now, it was around this time that you wrote a letter to Radio 2UE expressing your desire to become a race caller 
and you got a reply to that letter. Yep. Well, uh, it would have been early in 1965, John, when I was back working for the Stamina Clothing Company and I was uh, doing some rep work for them at that particular period. And I decided to send a, an audio tape in of uh, my trot work uh, to, to UE. Anyway, uh, they sent back a nice letter saying, well, uh, thank you for your letter, but there's nothing going here, but we'll put your letter on file. And, uh, and that was that. Anyway, uh, later in the year, and I'm still doing rep work and a lot of country work for Stamina, and I'd come back on the Thursday night from a selling trip out in the Central West, and there's a letter with the uh, letterhead 2UE. Mm. I opened it up, and it was from the then manager, Brian McClenahan, to say that um, they were considering increasing their sporting coverage to incorporate uh, more trotting, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And uh, if you are still interested in pursuing a career, there could be an opportunity. So I thought nothing ventured, nothing gained. On the Friday morning, I'll ring 2UE, and I did. I got onto the... Uh, writer of the letter, Mr. McClenahan, the station manager, he said, can you come in this morning? And I said, certainly, sir. So I uh, hopped into 2UE, who were in Bly Street in the city at that stage, their studios, mm. and um, he said, uh, Ian, I'm in need of a trotting commentator for Harold Park tonight. This is the 1st of October, 1965. He said, uh, Des Hoisted has been sick, the start of the AJC Spring Carnival was the next day and they wanted to keep Des uh, for that particular assignment. So he said, look, I can't quite remember your audition tape. We're desperate. Can you do Harold Park trots tonight? And I said, certainly, Mr. McClanahan. <laughs> and that, that was the start. Des didn't want to continue doing the trots. Uh, and then I worked casually of a Friday night. Uh, until the latter part of November when TUE offered me a full-time job. So that's how it all started, John, and uh, I well remember that night, 1st of October, 65, the first race, a, a square trotting race, won by Yamamoto, the great Jack Watts, trained and drove it, and uh, that will stick in my mind forever. And J.D. Watts, who was a true legend in the sport in that era, possibly drove more champions than any other uh, driver of that time. Uh, here is a man who drove Walla Walla. Uh, he drove Rabans. He, he won a New Zealand pacing championship on Rabans mm. and many, many other great horses of that time. But to get yeah. him reminiscing about Walla Walla used to make the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Yes, he was a wonderful, wonderful trainer, driver, and a great bloke, and a great family. And, of course, in that month um, that I started, in October 65, uh, the first major trot race I did was the Spring Cup. Mm. And who won it? None other than oligarch, trained and driven by J.D.'s son, Colin. Colin Watts, who turned yep. 90 recently. Ian? Yes, so the all green of Colin on Oligarch. Yeah, wonderful memories. But gee, John, just digressing slightly when we think of Jack Watson. Uh, when I was a kid and uh, listening to the trots on 2K1 on a Friday or a Saturday night, they used to alternate, as you'd remember. But mm. those names like J.D. Watson, P.J. Hall, J.C. Caffin, A. Phyllis, mm. H.R. Alley, Sutton McMillan, 
Les Champ, Merv Adams, Bill Pickens Sr., Jack Binskin, oh gosh, Frank Culbert, Sammy Agate. What names? Incredible names. And then the following generation uh, comprised a few superstars too. Oh, golly, when you look back, you know, Tony Turnbull. Uh, I don't know whether we could put him into the, that original list of veterans that I mentioned, but, I mean, uh, look at what he achieved, uh, uh, you know, even following the retirement of fellas like Jimmy Caff and Al Phyllis, Percy Hall, etc. Yeah. But uh, Kevin Newman, Laurie Moulds, Brian Hancock, Vicky Frost. What about Kevin Robinson? What about Joe Wilsley? Yep. Gosh, you can go on and on. What, what a sport, John. Yeah, it was a what wonder, an era. wonderful era. Young Cyril Caffin was starting to make a name for himself too at that time. Yes, yes Son of exactly. J.C. Caffin. And yep. Ian, to this day, I don't think I've seen a better race driver than Cyril Caffin. Well, there you are. He yep. ticked every box. The genes certainly flowed there, didn't they? Mm. I'll get you to stand by, mate. I've just made it a, an executive decision. Uh, this is the end of part one of our podcast interview. Wow. Back, back with Ian Craig for part two shortly. The recent Great Southern Sale at the beautifully renovated Oakland's Junction Complex was an outstanding success. The select weanlings offered on the first two days averaged over $32,000 with a clearance rate of almost 80%. 22 of them sold for $100,000 or more. The broodmares also enjoyed considerable increases across all key indicators. An average of 25,000 up 27%, a median of 8,000 up 45% and a gross of 5.1 million up 15%. Top of the market was again very strong with nine horses selling for $200,000 or more. Across four days of selling, the gross was almost 17.7 million up 11%. It's time for vendors to switch the attention to the 2020 yearling sales and entries will open in early July. Go to inglis.com.au.